chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. Jesus' first disciples. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. properly yes good right okay so we pray father we thank you for your word we thank you that through it you can speak to us and father you may have something different to say to each of us today through my words but lord i just pray that we'll be open be willing and that you will in fact touch each one of us amen right I'm going to base my reading on um, the um, Corinthians passage. Now, Paul's two letters to the Corinthian church can be summed up basically as instruction on how to live a godly life in a very ungodly world. That's it then. (laughs) Done. But today, we're going to be looking at the introduction to the first of these letters. But I do think to understand some of the issues that Paul was dealing with, it may be helpful to have an understanding of the nature of the city in which the church was actually based. So, if you look at this map, yeah, you can see Corinth. Now, it's in the, where the land narrows, it's that little bit in there, yeah? That's where Corinth is. So... It was built on a narrow four and a half mile wide isthmus or strip of land that separated the Peloponnese, which is the bit at the bottom, and the Greek mainland. It controlled overland commercial traffic as well as trade between Europe and Asia because it had two harbours. One which led to Asia from the southern port into the Aegean and one that led to Italy and the might of Rome from the northern one into the Adriatic. For centuries, it had flourished as a Greek city-state, but it had been destroyed in the wars with Rome and had been largely abandoned for about 100 years until Julius Caesar rebuilt it in AD 44. Now, in his helpful study on Corinthians, Gordon Fee explained that 
When repopulated, it was largely, not solely, but largely with freedmen from Rome, not the wealthy, but those whose status was just above those of slaves. It enabled Rome to get rid of a lot of people who were potential troublemakers. But it also offered many opportunities, and the city became very wealthy, and it flourished. Now, as well as Romans, it attracted people from all over the region, obviously Greeks, because it had been a Greek city, plus those from more eastern countries, bringing with them their own strange cults and beliefs, including the Jews, and their very peculiar belief in just one God. This, then, was the city to which Paul travelled in AD 50 and established a Christian church. It was a wealthy city, with no landed aristocracy to speak of, but a developed a kind of aristocracy of money. If you had a lot of money, you were in charge. A city that was largely made up of the lower echelons of society, a seaport, where money flowed freely, and not surprisingly, a culture where licentious behaviour was the norm. Now, with such a melting pot of cultures, there was also a plethora of religions. This is a new word for me. Pausanias, a second century Greek geographer, showing off here, said that there were 26 sacred sites within this city, this small city, plus Jewish synagogue. Now, if you look at passages from Romans, Acts, and of course, Corinthians itself, it's clear that the makeup of the church in Corinth reflected this diversity of cultures. So you can see that from the, some of the names that Paul mentions. There's Romans, Greeks, and Jews. So with this background, um, later in Corinthians, um, Paul states that in baptism there is no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free. When you know the background, it has a deeper meaning as to what he's talking about when you look at how the city was founded. So the majority of the church would have come from what was considered to be a pagan background with a largely Hellenistic worldview. Now, if you put a second map up, please, Emma. At the time of writing the letter, in around AD 55, Paul was in Ephesus, which is across the Aegean Sea. So if you see... We've got Corinth on the left here. Paul's gone all the way up the top, over the top and down. That little bit there is Corinth. And then he's gone across <coughs> the sea and he's in Ephesus. So he's quite a way away. Disturbing news reached him there. Both in writing, he had a letter, and in person. People turned up to see him. Now we don't have time to go into all that today. But essentially, the church is fighting among itself. Factions are visible, some are in danger of going back to their former lives and their former gods. Others are lording over, the, um, some of them, with their so-called knowledge. Of, um, and class divisions are visible, even at the Lord's table. So Paul was sufficiently concerned to write this letter, not only about the challenge to his authority, but primarily about the Corinthian understanding of the gospel. But enough of the history lesson. Although it has been fascinating research in this. So let's turn to our passage today. Even though the reading is only nine verses long, there are many themes that can be seen. It's a bit like a musical overture. You get snippets at the start of the show, 
Well, Paul's introductory, introductory verses does the same thing. It introduces some of the themes he expounds on later in his letter. But I'm just going to concentrate on two. Thanksgiving and calling or identity. Now, the opening verses of the letter follow the ancient letter-writing formula, namely salutation and thanksgiving. Not surprisingly, these have a particularly distinctly Christian overtone. But instead of wading in with criticism and loads of teaching, Paul uses the thanksgiving element of the introduction to set the whole tone of his letter. One, that everything has to be seen at the light of the grace that God has given, and two, the believer's fellowship with Christ. It is Christ who is central to everything. And I don't know if you noticed, but in those nine verses, the name of Christ was mentioned seven times. Now, after the salutation, which I'll come back to, Paul states, I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Now, this thankfulness is not just expressed to one individual who might have been one of his supporters. It's an open letter to the whole church in Corinth, including those who, to put it mildly, are the cause of great concern and is big headache. After all, some of these Christians have been taking each other to court. They've been fighting over who should be their leader, Peter, Paul or Apollos. They've been turning a blind eye to the immorality of their fellow believers and, crucially, the believers are not being treated equally at communion. And yet, Paul is thankful. Not because of what they have done, and he's about to address in great detail exactly where they've gone wrong, but because of who they are. Because of who they are in Christ Jesus and because of God's grace. It reminds me of the times when my children were growing up that there were occasions when I really didn't like what they did, but I would always love them. Now, sadly, as we all know, divisions in the church are common, both on a national scale, but it can be also locally. And it is easy to get caught up in condemnation, criticism, backbiting, or just ignoring people we don't particularly like. And I have to admit, there have been times over the years, generally before I came here, when things have happened that have made it difficult to be thankful for my fellow Christians. We aren't always kind to each other, and we certainly aren't always thankful for them. And I think it's a real challenge for all of us because Paul's thankfulness is not based on what people have done or not done, but it's rooted in what God has done. And I think it's a salutary lesson for us all. In spite of everything Paul saw these people doing, he saw them as God saw them. Loved, accepted and sanctified. And thankfulness pervades nearly all of Paul's letters although you won't find it in Galatians, because he was extremely cross with them. So how thankful are we? Not only for those who are stalwarts of the church, who 
whose kindness and gentle but steadfast faithfulness are beacons of Christ's light and love. But for those fellow believers who wind us up, who seem to be particularly demanding, for those whom it seems can easily sow discord, for those who push our buttons, as it were. Although it may be a good thing to ask ourselves if we could be that for other people. And if you go to the verse after our reading, verse 10, Paul writes, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another, so there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And we actually sang that in our, the song we've just sung. Now, it's not about requiring everyone to believe exactly the same thing or not disagree about anything, but it's about working in harmony, to not let any disagreements create division or discord. And the reason I particularly mention this verse is that this week is the week of prayer for Christian unity. The theme is unusual kindness. So maybe this week we could all look for ways to be unusually kind to one another. And the second theme I was going to talk about is calling and identity. So if you turn back to verse 1, Paul opens his letter with these words. Paul called to be an apostle by the will of God. Now it's customary in those days to begin letters by introducing one another and identifying themselves at the start. Now these days we put our name at the end of a letter. Paul was not only following contemporary convention, but he was immediately dealing with one of the challenges raised by the church. Paul was declaring his role. He's an apostle. Possible? An apostle. Apostle, one sent with a message. Now he does this with most of his letters. He's declaring his authority by stating it was God and Christ who called him. And it's this God-given ministry that his ministry, so it's God-given authority that his ministry is based on. However, we're all called. We're all called by God. We're called to know him. We're called to salvation. We're called to follow him and we're called to serve him. Calling people to follow is a characteristic of God, and you can see it throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Even our Gospel reader this morning, we read of the calling of Jesus of the first disciples, Andrew and Simon. <clears throat> but we can also see from verse 2 that the church is called to be different, to be holy, to be set apart, to be different from the culture that surrounds it. And if you think of the culture that the Corinthian church was based in, that has quite an important message. I think it's helpful to note though that Paul addresses his letter not just to that church in Corinth but to the church everywhere which means to us. We are called out of our old way of living and into a new reality. One where we are sanctified or set apart because God is holy and we are his people are holy. But this is important it is not our striving for holiness that makes us sanctified or saints. It's through our relationship, our fellowship with Christ. So I'll end with this final verse of our reading where Paul states, God who has called you into fellowship with Christ Jesus our Lord is faithful. I think it's a wonderful verse. God has called you 
into fellowship. He is faithful. It's because it's God who has called these believers by his grace that Paul is thankful. It is because God has called them and us into fellowship with Christ that we too need to be thankful. Because it's a privilege we cannot earn. Fellowship with Christ is a gift and it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's that fellowship that sets us apart and gives us a new identity. And it's by fully grasping the reality of that relationship and the power that God has bestowed on us that will enable us to live the lives that God wants us to live. So, as we go out this week, be thankful for the grace that God has given. Thank God for your fellow believers and be confident of your calling into the relationship with Christ Jesus because it is he who has called you and he who is faithful. Amen.